The Sanctuary, a community of Jesus people promoting the glory of God in all things to all nations through gospel-centered missional living. Whether it be working with groups in Africa to build orphanages and help rid the continent of AIDS, or feeding the hungry, giving to the oppressed, and helping the hurting who live in our own community, The Sanctuary invites you to be part of a culture of passionate service. You can change your world. Be inspired. Join the movement. So we'll be in 2 Corinthians uh, today, chapter 3. You can turn there if you'd like to. We're walking through the book of of, uh, 2 Corinthians. Um, We just finished up uh, Valentine's Day, right? One of the made-up holidays we have to uh, endure, right? So we just uh, did the whole Valentine's Day thing. And a lot of us struggle with what to write on that little card, right? Um, We used to maybe get the blank one and we could write something cute or pithy or sweet or anything. Now I'm like, gosh, please just give me a good card that says something on it, you know? Um, And a lot of us may struggle with what to write or express ourselves on a little note or a letter to somebody. There are some pictures, Lizzie, if you could just throw the first one up. These are little kids that wrote different Valentines. So thank you, mom, for making me food so I don't die. So... There's the beginning point, right? There's something that we can say that's help us express ourselves. This is, I would have written this. My second Valentine is for Miss Johnson. She is so great teacher. She's not on the Jedi Council, but she is great with the force. <laughs> Fantastic. You're going to get that next year, by the way. Uh, happy Valentine's. I hope you have a great day, and I like you too. And by like you, do you mean love? If you do, me too, but we can't be boyfriend and girlfriend. My mom won't let me. But we can like and befriend and play together. P.S. This is not my best writing. <laughs> so there you go, guys. You can always start. Again, these are beginning points at the very least. This is my favorite one. I love you with all my butt. I would say heart, but my butt's bigger. <laughs> That's also on the list for the future. You'll be getting that one. Right? <laughs> It's not that hard, man, right, to express yourself, to tell people you love them, right, to, to uh, express your heart for people. Um, we, we make it hard, but it, maybe it's not quite that hard. So can you imagine if we struggle with a note, you know, just writing a simple note to somebody, can you imagine trying to put your thoughts about somebody in a book? Like having to write an entire book. We struggle with simple Valentine's notes, but can you imagine this? Like, Lord of the Rings took 12 years for Tolkien to write. Gone with the Wind took 10 years for her to write. The longest one that I could find was a book, um, a, a collection of poems by Ezra Pounds, and he was kind of a nut job at the end of World War II, and he wrote a lot of poetry. But he wrote a 120-section uh, poem called The Cantos. It took him 57 years. 57 years to write a book of poetry, right? I could trip into poetry, right? Maybe it wouldn't take 57 years. But we struggle with this idea of how do I express myself? How do I put my thoughts down? How do I uh, express my heart and my my feelings toward someone? So as we get into this text today, we're going to see that Paul is telling us that There's several kinds of writings going on here, that he is writing a book, that God is writing a book, that the Corinthians are writing a book um, and and expressing their thoughts and their feelings, but certainly more than that, God's work in them and God's grace in them. Now, if you'll remember, we don't have time to go back into this, but if you read 1 Corinthians and you know a little bit of the history there, you would see that the, the Corinthian church has been a major pain for Paul. 
This is, this is not the church you get up and look forward to visiting on Sunday. This was the church that was messed up. Um, they were celebrating sin. Um, they were, I guess I would say, kind of doing church in a very harmful way. They were hurting each other with how they were trying to express their, their faith even as they got together. Um, and it had been a real pain for Paul, which we're going to come back into a little bit. So at the beginning of, of chapter 3 here, um, he's going to tell them how God has been writing a letter in them and through them. That God is expressing his heart through the Corinthians to Paul. And it's just this beautiful kind of reconciliation that happens. But we're going to revisit that idea that God's writing. He's expressing himself in us and through us um, throughout the morning that we uh, talk today. So look in, in chapter 3 verse 1. And Paul says this, the first three verses, he says, Are we beginning to commend ourselves again? Or do we need, as some, letters of commendation to you or from you? You are our letter, written on our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are also a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of of human hearts. And that's a really beautiful way to kind of reconcile with people, right? Um, we've had a hard time and it's been very difficult. Um, if anybody's going to recommend me to minister to you and to be your spiritual father in some ways, you're my recommendation letter. God is writing on you. I've written on you. Um, and we want the world to see what God's doing. So uh, there's been this breakdown of relationship and false teachers have come in, which we'll talk about that a little bit. But uh, Paul has left the church and other teachers have come in and they're, they're really literally teaching a false gospel. It sounds good, um, but there's huge parts of grace that are missing. Um, and now the Corinthians are actually asking the question, hey, Paul, how do we know that you're qualified to lead us? How do we know that you're qualified to teach us, um, to lead us into spiritual uh, maturity? And so Paul says, listen, I have two responses to that. And he uses that letter imagery. And the first thing he says is, he's like, you are my recommendation letter. Not by living a perfect life, you know, and not by doing Christianity the way that, that I wish you would have done Christianity, but the fact that you have persevered, the fact that you have maintained your Christian walk through your immaturity and your sin and uh, the, the lack of connection, the loss of connection that we've had and the correction that I've had to do for you. You are my recommendation letter. You prove that my ministry is effective in, in some ways is what he's saying. Um, so then the second thing, he's like, you're, you're also a blank page on which the Holy, uh, the Holy Spirit is, is writing about the character of Christ. Your hearts are a blank page. And on that blank page, the Holy Spirit has taken up a pen and an ink. And he is writing about God's character, about the character of Jesus in you. So he says, the best evidence that I have for you about my uh, right, my qualifications, my credentials to lead you and to teach you, are, are you, the Corinthians, the people in the church, you are my recommendation letter. This is a big deal, man, given all the struggles that they've walked through, that Paul would say this about them. Matter of fact, the Corinthian church is probably the church you would leave off your resume. <laughs> you know, if you go start a church that does the things that they did, if you go look back at 1 Corinthians, it's like, I just wasn't there. That was a three-year gap in my work history that we're not going to talk about, you know. But he doesn't do that. He says, no, quite the opposite. The fact that you have stuck with it and you've handled my correction and you've gotten your, your lives back in order in terms of living like the Holy Spirit wants you to live, you are my recommendation letter. That you have persevered through all that. 
Paul is convinced that even through all of that, the Holy Spirit is doing a genuine work in that church. That he's doing a genuine thing in their lives. So they've struggled and they persevere um, and they become the very thing that I think God writes on their hearts and says, Paul, you are um, exactly doing, uh, doing exactly what I want you to do. You're the man that I want you to be. You're exactly where I want you to be doing what I want you to do. So one of the things that I took away from that, that section there, because this is over years, this, this whole thing, event, takes place over years. And this, this uh, uh, complicated relationship, I think, that he has with Corinth. So what, what I kind of took away from that was this idea that we have to play the long game when it comes to discipleship and, and spiritual formation. And, and we're so, our, our culture is so given to immediate results. And if I don't see something happening now or in six months, and I've got a program, you know, and I'm going to take you through Gruden's systematic theology, and if you don't love Jesus more at the end of that, I failed, you know, and I'm going to raise my kids to go to church, and I'm going to raise them, do my best to raise them to love Christ, and et cetera, et cetera. And then they, they wander away some during those early adult years or even the, the older teenage years, and we're like, oh my gosh, I'm a failure. Listen, we're in this for the long game, guys. This, this whole spiritual formation thing, it's got to be strong enough to weather the bumps and the, and the, and the, the ocean waves and the, the tidal pools of relationships that are upside down and get screwy and wonky and all that stuff. We have to be in this for the long game. If you think that the point of parenting is raising a child who's good, you've missed the point. You've got to play the long game in rearing children right? And the same thing happens with churches, with people, with spiritual formation, as you pour yourselves into each other's lives. We're in this for the long haul. So my next question for you would be, are you in the game for the long haul? Are you in it? I I can't tell you, I mean, you know, our relationship with churches is very complicated too, isn't it? We're not too dissimilar from Paul in that degree, that we've been to churches, we've tried a church, we've done this and heard this and whatever. And I can't tell you how many times people would come back, you know, and, and tell me, you know, that I've, I tried this here and I poured myself away in this place and da-da-da-da, and their church history is just pockmarked by two years here, three years here, one year here, eight months here, 12 months here. And, and, and I, I want to just ask us all this question, where are we putting down some roots and pouring ourselves into each other? Are you in this thing for the long haul? Not sanctuary, don't just kind of divorce yourself with the idea of these four walls in this place, but some place where you're going to plant yourself and you're going to give yourself away to people who will be knuckleheads. Just get ready for it. The people you're discipling will hurt you. The people that you are leading in spiritual growth will disappoint you. That is not permission. God doesn't give you the hall pass to get out at that point, you know? We have to be in this for the long haul. Now, there's pain, and I understand there's reasons to leave a church, and we can get into that at some point. I understand all of that. But you have to come into this relationship with, I'm in your life and you're not going to get rid of me, (laughs) right? That we're in this together for the long haul. So are you in that kind of relationship with someone, right? Where where you're the one saying, I'm going to walk with you. I'm going to be responsible for you to some degree. I'm going to help disciple you. I'm going to guide you through some spiritual formation and I'm in it for the long haul. Are you in that with somebody? Who is it? So if I just ask you, if we just gave out slips of paper, a couple hundred, whatever of this here, and you wrote down a name, would I end up with 200 names or 20 names? So I'm not asking conceptually, are you behind this? Are you going to amen this in this room? I'm asking you, like, who is that person for you? Who are you into this thing with, I'm going to be with you no matter what's going on? And eventually, you're going to be my recommendation letter. 
You're going to be the thing that I look back at some other church and I say, man, I discipled these three people, this one guy, this one lady. I poured myself into them and they persevered and they stuck it out. And God's doing an amazing work in their lives. Who are you doing that with? Whose heart? I love this idea, this idea of writing a letter. So maybe look at it this way. On whose heart are you writing the words of Jesus? Who's your letter? Who is it that you would look at and say, man, I am writing, I'm pouring out, I'm pouring out what God has done in me and you. And I'm, I'm writing that on your heart. Some of us will go, man, I'm not qualified. Well, nobody's qualified. I think at the end of the day, I don't think this really rests on your qualifications. I think you can prepare and, and, and learn how to do some things better. But it really doesn't come down to your qualifications. This discipleship thing isn't about your gifts or your calling. It's dependent on you getting your hands dirty in the work of building lives that love Jesus and that look like Jesus. That's what it's dependent on. You have to put yourself out there and say, I'm willing to get my hands dirty being involved in their lives for the long haul. And it takes work and it takes commitment and it takes perseverance, but we're writing the grace work of Jesus on people's hearts. Okay? So, got to be in this thing for the long haul as we do this uh, connection thing with other people. So, Paul talks about that and writing our, our, our letter on people's hearts. Um, and then he talks about the, one of the problems that they're running into, people who are kind of attacking his ministry. And I think this is important. Look in verse 4. He says, Such confidence we have through Jesus, uh, through Christ toward God. Not that we are adequate. So he says that, like, I'm not qualified. Not that we're adequate in ourselves to consider anything as coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. So Paul is talking about his message in a very particular way, a very specific uh, context. And he's like, listen, I, I have this message for you. I'm writing these words in you um, and my ministry to you. And now he, he's trying to explain to them the connection between his ministry and the Old Testament. And he's going to go through this little thing. We're about to, that was the easy part. He's going to get into a kind of complicated uh, part of the letter here where he talks about some very specific Old Testament things. And let me explain a little bit uh, why he's doing that. There's a group of uh, people in his church, we, we call them Judaizers. So what, what would happen was they were either ethnically Jewish, they were born Jewish, or they had converted to Judaism and came into Christianity and they're like, oh, wow, now we get to keep the whole law and love Jesus. So they're trying to connect doing everything in the Old Testament and we really like some of the stuff Jesus said. So they didn't see Jesus as coming into the world to replace the law. They, see Je they saw Jesus as coming into the world and going, do the law. Okay? So they're, they're now going to these people in Corinth, and they're like, if Paul's not telling you to keep the entire Old Testament, you need to get rid of him. He's a bad teacher. So they're really confused, right? They're like, man, is this about grace? And what is our relationship to the law? And what did Jesus really come to do? And so Paul's going to directly, specifically talk to that group of people and to them so that they get some clarity um, about what's going on here. Um, so they're, they're, they're trying to destroy Paul, and they're trying to kind of destroy his ministry there, and they're pointing out their argument is that Paul had broken with Moses but not requiring circumcision, which we read about in other books, and dietary requirements, and religious festivals, and the Sabbath laws, and all the stuff we see in the Old Testament. So they're convinced 
that because, because Paul doesn't do that, he's incompetent. His ministry doesn't hold weight, and it is not ordained by God because he's not requiring everybody to keep the Old Testament law. He's unable to lead them into, into true spiritual maturity. That's the argument that they're making against him. But what they're missing is these two key understandings, okay? They're missing very two key things uh, about the law. In Paul's view, in the New Testament's view, the law is inadequate. Listen, because it can only prescribe what we ought to do. It does not have the moral power to enable us to do it. All the Old Testament does is say, you should be this, you should do this, you should be this person, you should not do those things. That's it. It has zero ability to get into us and rebirth our hearts. So in in Paul's view, the law is inadequate. What Paul means here is that the law was purely an external moral code. And that kind of a code even though it can be successful in exposing our sins, which the Old Testament was great at, right? Showing us where we were short on everything. It is no use at all for cleansing people's sins. What people need, if they're going to be delivered from the condemnation of sin, is an eternal, an internal renewal. Our moral compass has to be radically redone. The law has to not just be written in stone, the Spirit must write it on our hearts. That's Paul's point here, right? That the law can only tell us what we ought to do. It has no power to show us how to do it or to create us, recreate us, so that we can do it in any way. So I do think one of the things you're going to rest, some of us will struggle with this over the next couple of verses. Are you kind of caught up in that whole world of be good, try hard, um, change yourself, uh, make yourself a better person? I hear you. I I talk to some of you, and I hear those words coming out of your mouth. That's not grace. That's not Jesus. The message that I'm proclaiming and that the scripture, the the, the Bible is telling us is that that's the law. And and Paul's going to say in a moment, not only does it not bring you life, it actually ushers you into death. So I do think we do need to wrestle with this idea here, am I doing this Old Testament Christianity kind of a thing, where I like Jesus, and I love this idea of who Christ is, and da da da, but I'm going to be good. I'm going to try hard. I'm going to ask Jesus to kind of baptize my efforts to change myself. That is not grace by any stretch of the imagination. Verses 6 and 7 in particular should sound familiar to some of us here, where he says, I'm going to write it. The Holy Spirit has to come and write it on our hearts. Uh, the letter kills us. There's this ministry of death. It says it in letters engraved on stones that came with glory so that the sons of Israel could look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory on his face fading as it was. There's this all this Old Testament imagery that Paul starts to get into here. And there's this... It sounds like there's a passage in Jeremiah 31 where God says, I'm not going to write the law on the stones anymore. I'm going to write it on their hearts. So there's this day coming back in Jeremiah where God's like, I'm going to change this from being an external thing to an internal thing. So how is it that God is writing his thoughts on our hearts? So just think about that. So amazing that God is literally writing on our hearts. How is that happening? How does that, that, that begin to work out of us? That he's writing in us and in our souls, not on stone tablets and not rule books. So what does that even mean? What does that look like? Well, Paul helps us understand this a little bit more. And he talks about the letter kills. 
The letter kills, right? Doesn't bring life. Why does the letter kill? Why did the law kill people? Because people began to abuse it. There's nothing, we're going to talk about it in a second, there's nothing, there's nothing wrong with the law. In and of itself, there's nothing wrong with it. The problem is, is that people began to abuse it. The Old Testament law was never meant to bring people to salvation. It was never a tool for salvation. When anybody tried to gain eternal life by being obedient to the law, Romans chapter 7 says that it actually brought them under a curse of death. It was never intended to lead us to life. The early church, which we're reading about here in Corinthians, the early church faces these false teachers, and these false teachers are telling them, listen, you have to keep the law of Moses. You have to be good. You have to morally change yourself and do ethically good things, and that's how you get eternal life. And they fail to understand that when I seek any kind of personal righteousness, no matter how religious it sounds, all it does is lead me to death. And it's a really double kind of condemnation because in the process, I've convinced myself I'm good or that I work really hard. So now I'm really confident in the effort that I'm in putting in trying to be good when I can't make myself good, which leads me to a double kind of death. So Paul's trying to point out here, listen, you're, and he's going to talk about it, we're free from that. We don't have to live like that anymore. And it was never intended for us to live like that. Look in verses uh, 6 through 12. So he says, uh, God has made us adequate as servants of a new covenant, not of the letter, but of the Spirit, for the letter kills, but the Spirit gives life. But if the ministry of death and, liter- and letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because the glory of his face fading as it was, how will the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed, what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. For if that which fades away was with glory, much more that which remains is in glory. Man, that glory word's all over the place, right? Like, Paul, what are you saying? Sounds like you're talking in circles. It's a Chinese, you know, uh, parable at this point. You know, we don't understand what he's saying. So he's leading us down this path to understand that the law had some glory to it. It was a fading glory. It was never intended to change us with a glory internally. And there's a greater glory that's come our way. So... He brings us to the next part, I think, the next part of what God's writing on our hearts. And it's, I would ask, it, uh, ask you about it personally like this. Are you living out God's letter of grace? That there's a grace letter that God's writing on you that goes beyond laws and rules and do this and keep that and all that stuff. Are you living out the letter of grace that God is writing on your heart? Taking it from the internal to the external. Taking it from your heart out into your life. It's a continuing letter that God is doing in us. He's continually writing. He talks about it in verses 1 through 3. He's going to talk about it again in verse 18, where this is a glory-to-glory authorship that God is doing in our lives, where he's writing this thing about his grace in us. The very next thing that Paul is going to say in verse 12, he says, Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech. So Paul's like, listen, there's something greater to hold on to than being good. There's something greater to hold on to than being religious. There's something greater than trying to make yourself a different person. It's the grace of God through Jesus Christ, and that gives us a great boldness. So again, I'll say the law wasn't broken, but Christ did come to do away with the law 
by fulfilling it, and the law was always intended to be replaced. Don't ever look back at the Old Testament. Don't get to Jesus and go, wow, God's basically confessing here the first 39 books were a mistake. Don't ever think that's what the deal was. The law was never intended to be sufficient in and of itself. God says that about the law while he's giving it. Just read the Old Testament. He's very clear about the intention of the law. The problem with the law wasn't the law, it was with people. So how do we begin to misunderstand it? Maybe some of us do this too. Verses 4 through 6 tell us this, that the map was, or the, 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 the law was actually a map through grace. The Old Testament was like a guidebook that would take us through God's graces. It was never intended to be self-made goodness. Grace gave us the system to know anything about God. Grace gave us the instructions to be able to get to God, to have any relationship with him in the Old Testament. And it was only grace that could bring us a change of heart. So in the Old Testament, I want you to look at it this way. In the Old Testament, the, the law was sufficient to give you grace for one year at a time. And at the end of that year, it had to be renewed. Every year. Grace was not given to you. It was not imparted or imputed to you. It was just kind of loaned out to you for a year. That's the way we could talk about that. So the law was sufficient to do those things and to show us what grace might look like, but it was never capable of giving us the grace that we actually needed. Next thing, the law brought death. People turned the law into a system of rules, and then they added rules to those rules so that you didn't break the law. They added a whole other set of rules to keep, so you never even got close to the law. And they thought that it was going to bring them life, but all it did was seal their separation from God. The new covenant through Jesus brings us life and freedom, and now we really can obey the law because we have a righteousness that comes from God. I'm not working to be made righteous. I am the righteousness of God through Jesus Christ. The Bible says that very clearly multiple times in the New Testament. Now I'm free to obey the law because I'm not obeying the law to become righteous. I am righteous, so now I can obey the law. Changes the whole idea. So the life, the law no longer brings death. It's a way actually of life for us. Uh, verses 7 and 11 talk about there was a fading glory with the law. So the Old Testament talks about this, that there was a, uh, Moses would come down from the mountain and he would have these times with God. His face would glow, literally glow. And he would also say, Paul also note, mentioned in the Old Testament talks about how that glory would fade, that, that shining light would fade off of him the longer he was off of the mountain. So if Moses' face glowed, but it wasn't forever, the law was always intended to show us that there was a source of glory that would never fade. That there was a glory that we could know, that we could have through the person of Jesus that would never, ever go away. The law doesn't point to the law. Some people think the Old Testament points to itself and says, keep this and you'll be good with God. The law was always intended to point to Christ. The minute you think the law is about the law, you've missed the point of the law. The law was never intended to be an end unto itself. It was always intended to point us to there's a greater glory. There's a greater source of glory. There's a greater source of grace that comes through Jesus Christ. That glory is being worked out in us, and that glory doesn't fade. That glory increases. So we're in an ever-increasing relationship as God's writing his grace on our hearts where his glory becomes made known through us more and more and more. So, Paul says, because of all that, we can be bold. We can be confident. 
Now we know the full message of God through Jesus Christ. We know the full, everything God's trying to say to us about grace and goodness and all these things, he has made it very clear to us through Jesus Christ. So we can leave this place, we can go out into the work world or our family lives or wherever, and we can be bold about that because we have the, the clear gospel, the full gospel that God has for us. I have to say, we can even broaden it out from there. That means I think you can pray with boldness. We can go out of here with boldness. We can live in the freedom of obedience with boldness. We can share the gospel with boldness. We can step into the messiness of life with each other because of boldness. Because God is making sure that the work that he's doing in us is from glory to glory and it's going to endure forever. So that empowers us to do the things that we're doing with boldness. Man, don't be intimidated to live for Jesus. And I don't mean that in a Southern Baptist, revivalistic, evangelical kind of way. I mean that literally. Don't be embarrassed to live for Jesus. Don't be intimidated to live for Christ. This is an intimidating time in American history. I think we're pansies compared to the rest of the world. But for American Christians, this is a very intimidating time. It's a difficult time. Don't be intimidated to live for him. He is working a glory in you and through you and writing a, a book of grace in people's hearts through you. Be emboldened by that. He's ensuring that whatever you're doing in your life is going to be from glory to glory. So live with that kind of boldness also. Now there's, God's writing all this in our hearts, and it's so much, and there's this renewal thing that he's doing in us and transforming us. What happens because of that? Look in verse uh, 12, all through the end of this little chapter here. Therefore, having such a hope, we use great boldness in our speech, and we are not like Moses, who used to put a veil over his face so that the sons of Israel would not look intently at the end of what was fading away. But their minds were hardened, for until this very day at the reading of the Old Covenant, the same veil remains unlifted because it's removed in Christ. But to this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their heart. And whenever a person turns to the Lord, his veil is taken away. Now the Lord is the Spirit, and where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is liberty. But we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, we are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. So he's like, what's the result of all this? God's writing this thing in you. Uh, he, it's, it's a glory that's not like the Old Testament glory. What's the effect in you? Well, he says, we're free. Verse 17, we're free. There's, uh, the Spirit of the Lord has come, and he has given us freedom. So what does he mean by that? Because this verse has been taken... And it's almost as bad as I can do all things through Christ and strengthen me. Like, we'll take that and use it for everything, right? Even though it has zero to do with what you're talking about. And, and it's totally out of context. This might be the second verse where we take totally out of context, right? And we use it almost any way we want to use it. This is written in a letter. It's got context. So in, in light of everything we've just looked at, what does that mean? That we're free. That the Holy Spirit brings us freedom. First of all, it means that when you contrast... Uh, Christianity with uh, other religious practices and other religious ways, we're not trying to impress God. I'm free from having to impress God. I don't have to write a, a perfect story with my life or do my very best all the time as if God's going to accept me more or less based on how I behave. I'm free from that. Amen? We should all say amen to that, right? Because we screwed up this morning on the way to church. You know what I mean? God wasn't impressed with how you got here, you know? 
So we're free from this idea that we have to impress God. Second thing, in Christ we are free from the dominion of sin and death. We are free from sin's guilt and sin's overpowering influence. This, this is where our theology really needs to be bolstered and built up because we struggle with, with besetting sins. A lot of us struggle with things that we can't seem to get over the top of. Here's what I want to tell all of us, man. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, sin has no dominion over you. You, you no longer have to do what sin tells you to do. Your old sin nature is a dead man. It's dead. It's already dead, okay? We still live like he's alive. We're just carrying his little corpse around, all right? But in reality, he's dead, you got to read your New Testament, guys. This is Romans, okay? He's already dead, and we have to live like he's dead. You as a believer are no longer bound to your sins. So what are your sins? What is the one that you can't get over? Is it self-image? You don't like yourself very much. You don't think you're very acceptable. You don't think you're very likable. So you push hard or you shy away from people so that you don't have to deal with that thing anymore. That's a sin. You're created in the image of God. You're a daughter of Christ. You're a son of the risen Lord. Amen? So listen, there, there's a freedom from sin. And I'll, I'll, I'll stretch this out into any sin you want to stretch it out to. You can talk about addictive issues. I don't give a rat's rear end, man. You tell me what your sin problem is, and you're free from it. Now, that's either true or not. And you can tell me how hard it is to deal with your sin and make a, excuses for why you can't get over your sin. Or we can say, I am free in Christ. Sin has no dominion over me. It doesn't mean that it's easy. It doesn't mean I don't fight battles. It just means it doesn't rule me anymore. And guilt, this is the other thing, guilt and shame that come along with sin, they're almost as bad as sin, you know, and the power that they can have over us. You're free from that. You don't have to be ruled by those things anymore. You're free from those things. From the, we're no longer slaves of sin. You are capable of resisting the influence of sin. You can resist the devil, and what does Scripture say he'll do? Flee. You are now empowered to do that because the Holy Spirit of God rests in you, lives in you. You're free from sin. Grace doesn't mean that we are free from obeying God. Some of us twist it like that. Well, I don't have to keep the Old Testament law. I don't, the Old Testament doesn't apply to me. I don't have to keep any of that stuff. Now I'm free to do whatever I want to. That is not what Scripture says. You're now a slave to righteousness. That's what Scripture says. You're now a slave to obeying God. And it's not like a drudgery. You get it today. I get to obey God today, right? I get to have a relationship with the Holy One of the universe. And I get to do what He tells me today because that's the way to life. I'm a slave to that kind of thing now. We're free from sin, free from uh, uh, being, being ruled by sin, free to obey God. It's like a practical daily righteousness, right? So just think yesterday, 24 hours ago, where were you not holy in your thoughts or your words or your actions? Maybe you were lazy and you just wasted the day or just whatever. You just weren't a holy being yesterday, right? I want you to think back about that, and I want you to think about tomorrow or next Saturday, and you're like, I don't have to do that next week. I don't have to do that tomorrow. I'm not going to be ruled by that. I'm not going to be ruled by food. I'm not going to be ruled by my body. I'm not going to be ruled by my emotions. I'm free from those things. I'm now a slave to righteousness. That's true freedom. So it says that we're free. He's writing his work on us. He's transforming us. In our hearts, as he's writing these things of grace in our hearts. And then in verse 18, I find verse 18 to be just this fascinating verse. I'm going to spend a little time. He says, We all, all of us who are following Christ, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, 
are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. This is just such an interesting place to land, and I want to go back and talk about Paul a little bit. I want you to remember who's writing this and, and maybe where he is in life and, and what's happening to him. If you can just, my, my Bible, I just look over here on page, first page of the book here of, of Corinthians, chapter 1, verse 8. This is who's writing. He says, We don't want you to be unaware, brethren, of our affliction, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened excessively beyond our strength, so that we despaired even of life. Indeed, we had the sentence of death within ourselves, so that we would not trust in ourselves, but in God who raised us from the dead, who delivered us from great peril of death, and he will deliver us, he on whom we have set our hope. So this is who's writing this book, and he comes to this place, and he's like, I, we can see the glory of God revealed like nobody else has seen God revealed. And Paul's not writing this in a vacuum, like I said, some ivory tower, Right? Where he's, where he's picking up clean pens, or he doesn't like, you know, there's dust on the mantle, and he has to start all over again in white gloves. He's in this dirty, hard, difficult place of life, writing to people who have been very painful to him. And he's like, I see what God is doing in us. Even through this pain, I see that he is writing these things in us. And he talks, and later in the book, he's going to talk about being beaten almost to death twice and stoned and left for dead and rejected by his friends and being shipwrecked and all this stuff that he's been going through. Really, 2 Corinthians, if you look at it, 2 Corinthians is this. Cole comes up to Paul and Cole's like, Paul, dude, this has been a bad week. My boss is a jerk and... Lauren's a great person, but I don't like her sometimes. And, you know, and he just gripes to Paul, and Paul's like, bro, hold my coffee. Let me tell you what, what it's like to suffer for Christ. That's pretty much what 2 Corinthians is about. 2 Corinthians is like, listen, I hear you that you're having a hard time. Let me tell you what, what it's like to follow Jesus and persevere when things are hard. So in the middle of that kind of pain... Paul looks at that and he's like, I see God writing his note of grace on my heart. Now, either Paul's delusional, right? He's just into this whole Jesus thing. He's lost his mind. Or something else is going on here, right? And, and you would look at, was that positive thinking? Pastor Joe, are you telling me to just change my thinking and everything's going to be okay? No, I want you to look at life rightly. I want you to adopt the mind of Christ about wherever it is you're in life right now. So let me do this a little bit. We're, it's a little circular, but I'm going to come back to it. Anybody read Malcolm Gladwell? Yeah? Great author. I would encourage you to read his stuff. He talked about this when he was doing a writing class, which was interesting. He said there's a principle in psychology called the other minds problem. In the very beginning, a child assumes that the contents of their own mind is the same as the contents of everybody else's mind. If a child wants a cracker, the child assumes that his mother wants a cracker. Cracker. He doesn't understand. He can't make the distinction between the fact that you think your thoughts and I think my thoughts. But there's a certain point, there's this crucial point in the development of a child when it suddenly occurs to him or her that if he wants a cracker, it doesn't necessarily follow that mom wants a cracker. That's when a child develops a theory of other minds. That people have minds different from his own. And it's this crucial point in development. And a lot of what a two-year-old does, two-year-olds are being terrible or three-year-olds are being terrible, a two-year-old is, ex is just experimenting with this new insight. It's never occurred to him up to that point, you don't think what I think. 
you have a different mind about this than I have. You have different desires about this thing than I have about this thing. Here's what I want you to do. I want you to expand that out to God and his ways and his purposes. You're the two-year-old and God's the parent. So here's what happens. We look at our lives and we're like, God, give me my cracker. Now, cracker can be car, spouse, retirement, dream job, safety, baby, success, or just more crackers. But we come to God and we're like, give me and fill in the blank. God looks back and says, my child, I want you to know something. I'm revealing my glory in you. I am transforming you into the same image of Jesus Christ from glory to glory. My, my spirit is always with you. He's always working in you. My story is being written in you. And we just come back and say, but God, I want this to go away. Or God, I want this to come into my life. What if we also prayed? There are times I think it's absolutely appropriate to pray for something and to pray that something leaves. So let's pray that prayer, but let's also pray something like this. God, would you give me your mind and your heart so that I would think rightly about where I am and where I've been and where I'm going? What if our problem with pain and we don't see God's writing his work in our lives is that we have the two-year-old mind? Well, of course God thinks about this the way that I do. Of course I see this the right way. Of course my interpretation of everything, my tiny little finite understanding of life, is right. Why wouldn't God give me this? Why wouldn't God take this particular thing away from me? And what if God just looks back and he says, listen, I can't even explain it to you. But you need to understand, I am writing a work of grace on your heart. I am transforming you from day to day. And I will take even this, and I will use it to make you into the image of Jesus Christ. And then I pray, well, God, let me see some of that. I know I don't get it all, and I'll never understand it all. But can you just show me? Give me your mind. Give me the mind of an adult follower of Christ, a growing, maturing follower of Jesus. And let me see how you're working in my life right now. The other thing you've got to remember, and Paul, soon, I don't know when he got this, but he got this. He had good theology somewhere along the way. You kind of have to start with that God's not doing any of this to hurt me. And some of us don't believe that. We start with, why would God do this to me? Does God not love me? Did I make God angry? That's the beginning point of interpreting every bit of pain and suffering and sorrow in our lives. We don't get to, well, God's writing in my heart, and God's transforming me day by day. We just get stuck on, why does God not love me anymore? Why is God doing this? He's doing this to hurt me. I wish I had time. I don't have time to do this, man. Your response, listen, here's the thing, guys. God's big, and he's big enough to take your punches, and you can grow, and he's your dad, and you can complain to him. Listen, eventually that complaining has to turn into, God, you are changing me from glory to glory, and I will worship you. Open my eyes to your glory so that I see a bit of what you're doing and turn my complaining into praising. Sooner or later, you have to make that turn. Bring me to a place of worship for your glory, because you're writing your letter in me. And I think that should change our worship. It should change our prayers. Today, later on, we'll have a chance to respond to that. But man, every day, that should change the way we go through life. God, I would really like this to be gone. I don't understand why this is here. It hurts. It's the worst thing I've ever been through. I would really like you to add this to my life. Give me this. I don't understand why I don't have this. But God, open my eyes so that I see what you're doing. Just a little bit. Give me your mind and your heart about this issue. Let me see the work that you're writing in my heart.
and praise him that he's doing that, even through the worst things in your life. So what are some things that could shake us out of being that two-year-old mind? What are some things that might shake us up out of that so that we would see God maybe rightly or, or believe rightly or think rightly about the things because we're so preoccupied with today. We're so preoccupied with this life and right now and what's happening and what might happen and speculating and all these things. How can I kind of break out of that? I'm not going to kill it, but man, these, these six verses effectively are telling you, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, look at Jesus, know Jesus, love Jesus, look at Jesus, follow Christ, know him. That's what it's telling you. Over and over and over again, it's telling you the hope of life is in Christ. Do you know him? Do you see him? Look at him. Know him. Follow him. Love him. That's Paul's answer to us. How can I get shaken out of this two-year-old mindset that's like, it's all about me and what I want. Everybody agrees with me and you're shocked when they don't. I have to see God in this unveiled glory that we can see through Jesus Christ. Again, if you're a reader, I would really encourage you to read The Attributes of God by A.W. Tozer. And he talks about these ridiculously incredible facets of God's character. And if you read this book, you'll be ashamed by how you thought about God before you read the book, to be honest. And he says this, like, here's the things that he talks about in that book. Here's the chapter titles. First of all, God's infinitude. God is infinite in a way that we don't understand, like it hurts your brain to think about it. God is infinite. You have maybe 75 years. You're a wisp. You're, you're just a smoke, a dew on the ground that burns up in the morning. God is infinite. That's just the first one. God is immense. He's bigger than your brain can comprehend, right? The universe he holds in the, in his, the palm of his, the universe he holds in the palm of his hand? We can't even understand how big the universe is. Once you get to light years, you and I check out. I don't even know what that means, right? And the universe is billions or hundreds of billions of light years across. God is immense. The immensity of God, the infinitude of God, the goodness of God. What do you think is good? Rocky Road ice cream, Lupe Tortilla, right? Every time the Cowboys win, uh, you know, that's good. That's good. Any definition I have of goodness is skewed by my sin and it's skewed by my lack of understanding, and it's skewed by my temporary nature. God's good. He defines goodness. What's really good flows and emanates from God. You having a hard time getting past the idea that the universe is about you, and everybody should agree with you, and God ought to agree with you about the timing of life and the season of life that you're in? because we don't know God. We're not seeing him. We're not looking at him. That's just the first three. Infinitude, immensity, goodness, justice. God is just. Don't be afraid of that. It's good that God is just. It's God's grace that he's just. Don't be afraid of that. His mercy, his grace, his omnipresence, his imminence. God is so close to us. He's so incredibly close to us. God is holy. God is perfect. Man, I'm just telling you, if you want your idea of God blown up, go check out that book. Here's what else he says in the, in the intro of the book. Tozer says this. He says, what comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. What comes into our minds when we think about God is the most important thing about us. Man's spiritual history will positively demonstrate that no religion has ever been greater than its idea of God. Worship is pure or base as the worshiper entertains high or low thoughts of God. 
So we sang earlier. We're going to sing again. We're going to respond to the Lord. What were your thoughts of God? When you were singing, did you sing with your mouth closed and your arms crossed and you were tapping your foot and you were looking at your watch and you did it? Or were you engaged with this ridiculously gracious, good, kind, awesome God who's not in another place of the universe? He came on a cross and he died for your sins and he's writing his words on your heart now. Man, he said this. This really got me this week. So it says that we see this, we see the beauty of Christ in a mirror. Okay, a a mirror is a two-dimensional object, right? Does that freak your brains out? You're three-dimensional, the mirror is two-dimensional, okay? (laughs) There's some junior high kid going, nuh-uh, it's three-dimensional too, it looks just like me. Okay, we'll talk about that. (laughs) So it's a two-dimensional representation of who you are in three dimensions, So look at it this way. Here's what I would say about Christ. We look at Jesus and we see the reflection of God in Christ, right? Well, what if it was a hall of mirrors? And instead of there being one mirror here, there was a mirror behind you. And you get that infinity mirror loop going on. Every time you look here, you go, oh my gosh, there's something about Christ I didn't see before. Oh my gosh, look at this one over here. And then there's a, and there's just this infinity, eternal understanding of who God is through Jesus Christ. I think that's what Paul's trying to tell us here. I have the ability, you have the ability, we have the ability to see the glory of God unveiled in the person of Jesus Christ. And that doesn't come to an end. My experience of that doesn't come to an end at any point, I think, in this existence. He says, I'm writing these things, or Christ is writing these words on your heart. He's writing a letter of renewal and transformation in your hearts. Man, guys, I think other people should be able to look at your lives and read the letter of God, what he's writing in you, in like big bold letters. Like that shouldn't be the subtext or the, the, the footnotes or the end notes. What God's writing in your life ought to be the boldest thing about your life. It ought to be something really clear that people can look at and see. What a compelling image this is about us, right? It means that we are a living letter written by the hand of God that people can read every day. Our lives are living testimonies of God's amazing grace and his power. So that means that there's a gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and there may be a gospel according to Joe. And you put your name in there. That changes the game when we walk out of here, doesn't it? That God is writing some grace letter in you that people are reading, and there's a good news of God and Jesus that people are seeing in you. That God is writing on you. So let's just agree that we're going to walk out of here and we're going to be God's postcard of love to the people around us, right? That God's writing in us and when we leave this place today, people look at us, we want them to see God's writing in us, that he's changing us from glory to glory every day and transforming us. As you guys bow your heads and close your eyes, this was a meaty, hard text to kind of walk through. I hope you found some freedom here today. We're not bound to be good, try hard, change your life. That's not gospel. We're not called to try to fabricate who Jesus or God is. We know him clearly through the person of Christ. There's a gospel. There's a grace work that God is doing in you today. God's writing on you through everything you're going through, your pain, your disappointments, your hard hard times and hardships. Several things I want to lead you through as we go into time of prayer and worship. First of all, does your mind need to be unveiled? Do you need to pray some kind of prayer like, God, show me the truth about who Jesus really is?
in my life, show me how you're transforming me. Give me a glimpse into the power of suffering in my life. Could you pray that prayer? Sometimes we're just praying, God, take it away, it hurts. But could you just pray, God, how are you using this suffering in me to transform me? Show me the power of this time in my life, even though it's hard. God, give me the, what does freedom look like in Jesus? I don't even know. Show me that. Unveil my eyes so I can see the freedom in Christ. I don't want to be confused about how I see Jesus. Can you pray that to him? Like, when I think about Christ, I want to see him clearly. I want to know him clearly. Some of us are clinging to that old way of thinking about God. Yes, I love Jesus, but really I'm going to change my life. Yes, I know who Christ is. I just, I'm I'm scared to death that maybe if I die, I'm not going to have a place with him because I wasn't very good this week or this month or this year. Give that up. Let go of that old way of understanding. Let go of that veil. It cannot bring you freedom. It actually gives you an excuse to keep sinning. Every time you fail, it's another excuse. I can't. I can't. I can't. I'm not good enough. And it gives you an excuse to stuck in that, get stuck in that little hamster wheel of sin. Give that up. God, maybe you need to pray, Lord, free me from sin. I do. I have a besetting sin. I have a sin I can't seem to get rid of. I can't, I can't get freedom and release from this sin. God, free me from sin, the guilt of sin. Some of us just carry that around, and we try to undo things from the past by being better today. God, free me from guilt and shame. Free me from fear. Free me from bitterness. God, I've lost my joy. Free me from the bitterness, God, that comes and steals the joy that I have in Christ. God, write your story in me. Can you just pray that? God, I don't know where I'm going. I don't know where this time in my life is going to take me. But I want you to write your story in me. And when people look at me, I want it to be clear, bold, big letters that I am God's Authorship. He is writing on my heart. So God, make me a postcard of your love. Gospel according to me. Let it be really powerful and hope-giving and life-giving to people. God, there's, this talk, there's all this talk in this passage here about glory. God, we want to see your glory. We want to know your glory. We want your glory to be revealed to us. Show us your glory, Lord. God, as we go into a time of worship and prayer and maybe ministry, Father, I just pray that you would show us your glory this morning. In whatever way we need to see it. Father, thank you for the word, the word of freedom that we've read this morning, Father. We come into this time humbly, but also boldly. And we're asking God, unveil our eyes. Father, Lord, show us Show us your glory during this time. We worship you.